Good morning, Frisco Bible Church. Uh, yeah, I'm not only honored to uh, stand in Wayne's stead before you this morning, I, I'm doubly honored to be a friend of Wayne Broderick. I thank you uh, for having the privilege of being led by a great leader. He's a good man. So he is on vacation, uh, resting, renewing, refreshing. I hope you'll be praying for him. Um, and I'm, I just... Uh, I'm grateful for the privilege to say hi again. If you were here a year ago, uh, I had the privilege of standing here. And I'm not sure how I did then. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different this morning. I've been told I have 90 seconds to, to, to convince you you need to listen to me for the next few minutes. 90 seconds, okay? So the beautiful thing you've added since last year is a countdown clock, an elapsed time deal. So, so I've got about 60 seconds left. Let me see if I can get your attention this way. Uh, anybody here ever been to a cowboy church? I don't mean where Dallas Cowboys go. I mean a cowboy. Okay, there's a couple of hands. Anybody else? Okay, great. I had the privilege yesterday morning of, of experiencing, I spoke to the men of Kings Road Cowboy Church in White Wright, Texas. And uh, while it, it's only literally 30 miles from here, it felt like 300 miles out into West Texas, what it felt like. And let me just say this. The experience was exactly what you'd imagine it would be like. Cowboy Church, I'm not going to say anymore. But what was fascinating is, is I'm pulling into the gravel parking lot and trying to find a place to park in the midst of all the trucks and the cowboys and all the stuff near the rodeo arena rink that they have there on the property. As I'm pulling in, I had this kind of deja vu moment. It was really, really weird. And, and I realized, you know what? I've been to something like this before. And it, and it just took me back to really almost 52 years ago, and, and these little West Texas churches that my grandparents were a part of. My, my father's uh, side of the family is West Texas ranchers, and, and I remember being shipped out there in the summers uh, to play cowboys, you know, and all that stuff, but we'd go to their little, little country church. And uh, the first memory I had, and what I had was I sat in that parking lot yesterday, was this flashback to the first VBS thing I ever did which was this little West Texas church in Monday, Texas, a week. I remembered these little sweet ladies. I don't remember the program. I don't remember the snacks, but I remember two Bible verses. Six years old, 52 years, folks. You don't think there's still value in VBS? It's amazing. Two verses. The first verse, uh, you probably know. As a matter of fact, according to Google, it's the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. What do you think of us? This lovely little lady right here on the front said that. John 3, 16. You remember what it is? Say it with me. For God the, that he gave so that should not but have eternal life. Folks, there it is in a nutshell. That's how the spiritual life begins, right? The context is this is how spiritual birth occurs. Jesus is telling this learned Jew. You must be born again. You must have this experience of coming to grips with the fact there's something lacking that you cannot earn. That we need rescuing and release from the stubborn, selfish, wrong belief that somehow we can save ourselves. That somehow we don't need God. That the applause and the accumulation and the achievement that we can go grab on our own is really all we need for life. We need rescuing from that. And God so loved us that he gave his one and only son that whoever shifts their belief from trusting in stuff and other lesser gods or themselves 
shifts that belief to the son is saved, is rescued. That's how the spiritual life begins. That's how birth occurs. But there's more to life than birth. And that's where the second verse comes in. And that's where we're going to go today because not only was I reminded yesterday, but I think this passage could be a great reminder to you and me today that also could serve as kind of a silver bullet for your spiritual life. Let me illustrate that this way. My daughter, I've got uh, four children. My oldest, uh, all my boys are uh, three sons that are now 23, uh, 21, and 17. They've all been baseball guys, and one of them now plays hockey, believe it or not, at Louisiana Tech. But, but all of them into sports. And my daughter just finished her freshman year of high school here at Frisco Centennial. She's been into volleyball. Really doing the club volleyball, the school volleyball deals. As a matter of fact, after the end of her freshman year this past year, as summer's approaching, the coach calls all the girls in and says, hey, this is the one thing I want to make sure all of you do this summer. If there's one thing I could recommend, club, sand, volleyball, all that stuff, here's the one thing. And when I did this one thing, and when I was your age, it added four inches to my vertical jump which for volleyball, that's a big deal. Increases your power, increases your strength, increases your speed, improves your proficiency, and will make volleyball a ton more fun as a result. And that is do this thing called the performance course. And it's kind of a strength and conditioning thing that's going on. My daughter is doing that. And it truly is already reaping great benefits. This passage we're going to look at this morning, I think, could be a performance course for the soul. So I want to invite you to join me and and look at the context from which the second verse I learned in that little country church comes. Matthew chapter 4, if you've got a Bible. We're going to be looking at just one verse, and it's in your bulletin. uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, and that was the second verse that I learned at Vacation Bible School. That verse just says, this is Jesus, come Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I think we need reminding of this call this morning. Let me just quickly, before we do that, let me read the context from which the verse comes. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 begins, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting their nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. For the next few minutes, we're going to talk about the what? This call to follow. Then we're going to talk about the four what? Follow to fish. Followers should fish. And finally, from whom? By whom? The source for the strength and the inability for our fishing to be effective. Christ himself. I will make you fishers of men. Can we do that? Have I got you? How'd I do? Okay, here we go. Somebody's yawning. That's not a good sign. All right, here we go. Let's jump back into this. Come, follow me. This call to come after me is much more than a call to follow me on Twitter or friend me on Facebook. This is a call, a proactive call. Some 20 plus times throughout the Gospels, Jesus calls, encourages groups and individuals, come after me, follow after me. 
And this isn't come be a part of my fan club. As a matter of fact, there's a distinction between fans and followers. What are fans? Fans are these enthusiastic admirers that gather in stadiums and concert venues. And they cheer while the people on the field or on the stage are sweating and giving you their all. And and we just are up there applauding. It's casual. We're consumers. It's entertain me, but don't expect much from me. It's enlightened me, but, but don't, don't inconvenience me. Sadly, I think a lot of our churches are filled with fans these days. Rather, followers, this call to come after me is a call not for enthusiastic admiration. It's a call for engaged apprenticeship. We don't use the word disciple a whole lot more these a whole lot these days. But in that day, in that time, when Jesus was saying, "Come, come after me, follow me," he's talking about attaching yourself to me as a disciple, as a student, as a learner, as a pupil, as an apprentice. And the idea was that was not only done in a religious context; that was done vocationally as well. That's how you learned from a master tradesman or a master teacher you came alongside them for more than information but ability it was an invitation to intimacy over time that would result in imitation folks we become like who we're with don't we that's why i care about who my kids best friends are i care about who they hang out with because we become like who we're with the call here is to come up close to christ and over time to become like Christ. Are you becoming like Christ? Are are you becoming more like Christ? Really? Have you thought about that recently? I mean, the idea, I think, of the Scriptures is that over time, as we're with Him, it's not like hanging out in a garage is just going to make you a car. Hanging out in church. No, that's not the... The hanging out is getting up close to Christ and those that know Him better than you do that you might become like him in the way he thinks and what captured his heart and what translated into this distinctive life, this different kind of life. Are you becoming like him? Are you more like Jesus this year than you were a year ago? How do you know? Well, ask the people closest to you, hey, Hey, are you seeing any more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in me than you did a year ago? Those are the fruits of the Spirit, by the way, that Jesus experienced and expressed perfectly. Hey, are, are you seeing any more burden for lost, lonely, hurting people in me than you did a year ago? Are we becoming like Christ? Are you? Because followers will fish. Because Jesus fished. Followers fish. The next thing he says, come after me. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you anglers of others. I will enable and involve you in catching others for Christ. We're talking about sharing our faith. We're talking about being part of the process of drawing men and women from the depths of of depression and drug dependency and division over race and color and and education and country. We're talking about drawing people 
to the only name under heaven by which men and women are saved. It's Jesus. Do you fish? You guys are blessed. You have one of the most amazing pictures uh, first impressions I have ever seen in any kind of church. I've been a professional Christian uh, since, since college, okay? So, so for 40 years, I've, I've done parachurch ministry. I've done four or five different churches. I've been a pastor in New York City. I've been a pastor here. I've been a pastor all over the place. And literally, the drive up to your place, I don't know if you guys appreciate this, is such a vivid, powerful picture, I think, of what we're talking about this morning. This cemetery right over here. I mean, as I pulled up, pull up the building, you guys, as you go out this door over here, have you all seen that cemetery? You know, Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but made alive in Christ. When you leave this building, everybody out there is dead in their trespasses and sins. Do you fish for them? He's calling us to be involved in this, in this occupation. What's the difference between fishing and floating? See, I think a lot of people fail to make the distinction between fans and followers and also between fishing and floating. What's the deal? You ever floated down the Guadalupe or the Kamal Rivers down there? You know, you get your inner tube, right? And maybe the beverage of your choice is in another inner tube floating along with you. And you're just kind of out there, right? And it's, a, and it's an escape. It's a vacation. It's an aimless just kind of, you know, letting it happen kind of thing. Fishing, particularly the kind of fishing these guys did. See, I love Jesus was a practical teacher. He used figures of speech and illustrations that really communicated to his audience. These guys were vocational fishermen. They, they weren't line fishermen. You know, they weren't concerned with the latest technology and technique and all that. They were just net fishermen. Throwing nets. It was more about intentionality and purpose and long hours. And, and it was a team thing. It was a we throw the nets kind of thing. And he said, I want you to come after me and I want you to make me your main thing. And, and the way you can measure that is by having this involvement in this amazing purpose of moving from fish to fisher. To being involved in inviting others in. Pulling others from the depths of despair and division and depression and death and deadness that's so visible in our world right now. Just look at the news. Are you fishing? Are you? See, see I think we've come to believe, I'm quoting Ed Stetzer, a Christian writer and now a professor at Wheaton College. Ed Stetzer said recently, I think we've come to believe that evangelism these days is done at church rather than through and by the church. And I would agree. We need to fish. There's people in your part of the pond that no other fisher may ever get to but you. You fish? See, see, this isn't the only passage. In case you think, well, you know, maybe that's just, you know, these four guys, maybe that's all he was talking to about that. Peter and James and John and, and Andrew. No, no, the, you know, the, the, the theme throughout the New Testament, right? He goes on chapter 5 to talk to a larger group and says, you're the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. The salt of the earth. 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In Acts 1.8, he says, You guys are going to be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm handing the baton off to you. Fish in your generation. He goes on in 1 Peter. Well, first, I mean, 2 Corinthians. We're ambassadors for Christ, he says. As if God were entreating through us. 1 Peter chapter 2.12. He says, I urge you, you're aliens and strangers in the world. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father on the day He visits us. Just later in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense for the hope that's in you. This life of intimacy is going to result in inquiry. People are going to go, wait, what is the deal with you? You live so different. You love and you care. Are you fishing? I'm sad, folks, that we're not. The reason we need this reminder is as I get the chance now, you know, I've done, I've been a senior pastor, I've been in church, I've done a lot of it, but now I've been, I'm able to go out and around, I'm kind of a missionary to this county, and I get to visit other churches and challenge them, not just, you know, have you been caught, but to become catchers, and, and the reason I think I need to is because studies are showing, and my own personal experience is, is kind of validating this, that most people in churches like this, wonderful, Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-following churches, most churches like this, when they're asked the question, hey, is it your job to fish? Hey, are you supposed to share your faith? Most, without exception, I'll get, you know, yes, okay, yeah, sure, you know. There was a survey done in 2013 by George Barna, uh, kind of the Gallup pollster for Christian, Christendom. Barna did a poll, a survey among evangelicals and said, hey, are you supposed to be involved in evangelism, personal evangelism? And then 100% said yes. And he goes, okay, are you? H have you done anything, by your own admission, have you done anything that you think is, would qualify as being engaged in evangelism in the last year? What percentage of evangelicals said yes? Do you, anybody want to guess? Yes, sir? Zero, no, it was one in 10. 10%, 10% of evangelicals said, oh yeah, I'm fishing. So we may know it, but we're not doing it. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's more to life than birth. Spiritual birth is an awesome thing. Heaven is yours. But what about all the people going to hell? Fish. Why don't we fish? Third point, back to fishing. Why don't we fish? I've asked this around to a lot of churches and a lot of church men and women in the last two and a half years. Why don't you fish? I usually get about five answers, but there's one by far. The number one is far and away the most often answer given for why I'm not more engaged in inviting others into this Christian adventure. What do you think it is? What's the number one reason most people don't share their faith? Fear, exactly. Fear. Fear of what? There's usually two different kinds of fear at work. What's number one? Rejection, right? Rejection where fear of insulting or you know, being seen as intolerant or condescending or, or you know, it's politically incorrect to, you know, to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but through him. What about my sincere and devout 
Muslim friend or my Hindu neighbor that just moved in across the street. Man, they, they're into their thing. And it would be intolerant of me to say that Jesus... As a matter of fact, okay, and somebody told me this after the first service. We talked about John 3.16 as the most recognized verse of the Bible. You know what's the most often quoted verse of the Bible according to Google? Anybody? There it is. Who said that? That was awesome. Perfect. Well done. Judge not lest you be judged. These days we live in a day where you're not supposed to judge. You know, don't come across as judgmental and harsh. And so we're afraid. We're afraid of, of, of somehow damaging relationships, building walls instead of bridges. So we're afraid, right? We're afraid of rejection. They won't like me. They won't like me. But there's another fear. What's the other fear? Ma'am? Oh, sir, I'm sorry. Humiliation, but what would we be humiliated about? That's true. No, it's more about, well, what if I get it wrong? What if they raise a question or have an objection and I don't have the right answer? What if I mess it up? What if I'm in there and I'm getting it going and I'm hooked to fish? Maybe I'm starting to, and, they don't, and they're saying, no, you know, what about this? And I go, oh, I'm going to mess it up. So we're afraid to get in the field because we may not have all of the answers. Competence, courage. We're afraid. Why don't we fish? That's why I love this third point. Who's going to make us fishers? This is a promise, folks. This isn't some sort of conditional thing, wishful thing. And this is Jesus saying, I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to be actively involved in, are you ready for this? In enabling you to do this. Matter of fact, here's a quote, please. If you remember anything from this message, I hope it'll be this one line a year from now, if Lord will not come back. God does not call the able God enables the called. Nobody I've ever met, myself included, feels qualified to lead a person from the gates of hell to the gates of glory. I don't feel qualified to do that. None of us do. But God does not call the able. He enables the called. Does that make sense? Do you hear that? I will make you fishers of men. Now, now, that does bring up a point, and I've just got a couple of minutes left, so let me just offer this, and it really could be a whole separate sermon. But it does bring up a point, well, wait a minute, so what's my part, and what's God's part in this deal? Does that make sense? I mean, I will make you fish. You're supposed to fish, but somehow God's going to make it work. Somehow God's going to do it. What's my part, what's God's part? You ever thought about that one? Has that ever kind of hung you up? As a matter of fact, let's broaden this back from, from just evangelism to the spiritual life in general. What does it mean to walk by faith? Have you ever thought of that one? See, I, I spend too much time thinking. This, me and this guy right here are tracking because he's raising his hand and answering every question. I love that. So, so walking by faith, do you see that? Do you see that kind of inherent contradiction there? I'm supposed to walk. That's something I do. The word walk, I'm going to communicate to me. My power, my energy, me. Walk by faith. That's a trusting in others, something else, something, right? To sit in that chair, I'm trusting that chair to hold me. That's a something. Other. So walking by faith, he's going to somehow make me a fish. What does that look like? I think that's confusing. I think that's confusing to a lot of folks that just never maybe slow down and stop and think about it. What does this mean? Well, I think that the, what we do is we tend to err in one of two directions. I was a kind of a spiritual schizophrenic for a long time. For a long, as a matter of fact, I spent my whole dissertation research 
answering this question is, what, is, what does this mean? What's my part? What's God's part in the spiritual life? And here's what I came up with. Most people of us, and myself included, tend to err to one or two extremes. On the one hand, we tend to think, well, walking by faith means I just got to trust God, that my part is just praying, giving it all to God. Only God can raise the dead. All those people are dead, so I'm just going to trust them to God. I'll just pray for them, you know. Only God can raise the dead, so there they are. I'm just going to let you have it, God. I'm going to let go and let God. My part is to pray every now and then. I think that's not quite it. The other extreme, though, is to go, well, okay, wait a minute. No, that doesn't feel like I'm doing enough over there if I'm just praying nothing else. So he's call, it seems like he's calling me to do something. So I get over on this side, and I go, okay, wait a minute. Maybe it's more about me, and I just call God in when I really need him, when it really gets desperate. Anybody here grow up in Dallas, in this area? Like literally grow up? Some of you, I see a couple of folks that may be close to my age. Anybody remember sportatorium wrestling? You remember wrestling growing up? The, every Saturday night, and it used to be on TV here in Dallas growing up, sportatorium wrestling is professional fake wrestling, okay? But it was wrestling. The Von Erichs, and you know, again, this is old news, I know to somebody, but the Von Erichs, there was wrestling, and tag team match was kind of always the premier match of the evening. And the tag team, you guys remember tag team? It's not four people in the rink at once. It's two guys are in, but their partners are just outside the, the ring, right? And so the two guys are skirmishing, they're struggling, they're getting there. One guy kind of just almost gets a guy pinned to the mat, and he's just getting close, and the, the guy on the back, he reaches out, and he just kind of tags his friend, and here comes his friend flying over the turnbuckle, right? And pow, knocks the other guy off, and then he rescues him, and it's awesome. Sometimes I think we picture the spiritual life like that. I'm supposed to kind of do this under my own steam, but boy, when the job goes away or the marriage begins to disintegrate or a kid goes off the rails or my neighbor comes in not just with atheist, atheistic kind of, but he's, he's angry. He's an angry atheist. And we tend to go, oh my gosh, tag God, you're it, you know. That we're somehow supposed to do it in our own strength until we just can't, and then we hand off. Is that what it means to walk by faith? Is a total hands-off, it's all on you, I'll just pray every now and then and go hang out in the garage with all the other cars on Sundays? Is that it? No, I think rather than a, than a, than a tag team, it's kind of a double team idea. You know what I mean? See, I, I had the privilege of playing football for a few years, and, and, I, and I was a center, okay? I was the guy that hiked the ball, right? I was little. Even then, I was little for football for a center in Texas in, in this area. But we had two guards, uh, particularly my senior year, we were pretty good. We had two guards that were giant men. I mean, these guys were strong. They were men. They had hair on their face in high school. They really knew. You know, they had deep voices and all that stuff. And, man, I mean, these guys were big. A double team is when one of them would assist me against the one guy. No matter how good that one guy is, in our first game of my senior year, we played the returning state champions. In Texas high school football, we were playing the first game. And the guy that was playing nose guard right over me had been an all-state first-team def uh, defensive player his junior year. So he's back his senior year. He was scary. He was intimidating, except I had my men. And whenever we double-teamed, he moved. He didn't have a chance. When my, when my kids were growing up, uh, my, our earliest our first-born uh, son, we lived up in Tulsa, and we had this little deck uh, on our back porch, and, and it had a rail about this high that was about the width of a two-by-six. It was about six inches wide. He used to love, after he got to walking, he's probably 18 months, maybe two years old, he used to love for me to put him up on that rail, and he liked to walk 
on that rail. But he'd never walk without going, Daddy, Daddy, and he'd do this, and I'd have to hold my hand. He went from a quivering coward to a confident ballerina with my hand there. Come follow me, and I'll hold your hand. Come follow me, it'll be a double team. God wants to leverage your experience, your education, your aptitudes to enable you to fish in the part of the pond that you live in. And you may truly be the only fisherman those fish ever are exposed to. And folks, he can help you do it. He he turned a prostitute into a fisherman. He turned a tax gatherer into a fisherman. He turned a demon-possessed guy, formerly demon-possessed guy, into a fisherman. He turned a paralytic into a fisherman. He could turn you into a fisherman. Will you fish? Are you fishing? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. As a matter of fact, my wife, who's a wonderful, practical woman, she was here in the first service, and she's her strongest words to me every time I get to stand in front of a group like you is, make sure you tell them what this is supposed to look like tomorrow. What is this supposed to do tomorrow? What am I doing with this tomorrow morning? Here's the deal, okay? Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Fishing starts with following. Are you really growing in Christ? Not growing old, growing up. There's an intentionality to that, folks. There's a coming with a purpose to his word and with his people. And the asking of others, man, am I getting this? Are you seeing some of Jesus in me? I'd encourage you to spend some time in the Gospels. I've had the privilege for the last two years with two different groups of men to go through each of the Gospels. It's been such a wonderful experience for me because we've been reading it going, hey, let's talk about what it looked like to live this, to truly be more like Jesus as a result of this investment because we become like who we're with. The equation then means it's a matter of time and investment with intentionality, right? So fishing begins with following. Will you follow him? Will you get in his word? It's sad how many of us that hang out in good Bible teaching churches don't read this for ourselves. And we certainly don't read it with the intent of not just getting knowledge, but living different. To follow. And then from following, the fishing ought to start to flow organically because Jesus was always burdened for these dead people. This cemetery picture to him was the way he lived. He was burdened. He wept over the helpless and the harassed crowds that needed a shepherd. And to pray the Lord of the harvest, didn't he? And he constantly was where the fish are. Prayer, care, share. That's the easiest philosophy for evangelism I've ever heard. Who's in your, who's in your part of the pond right now? that you could just start to pray for if you're not already, that you think is lost, you're not sure where they're at in terms of knowing Christ, following Christ, are you praying for them? Start tomorrow. Maybe think up a list of one or two or three today and start praying. And pray that God somehow might open opportunities for you to then care for them. Because Christianity is, is better caught than taught. It begins with expressing 
this Christ-likeness that I guarantee you will lead to people going, explain this to me. Explaining is after expressing. But anyway, so, so prayer, care, and then share. Look for opportunities to ask questions, to share. Hey, is God a part of your life? What happens? What do you think happens when you die? I'd love to know. I ask questions more than I give answers these days. We put people together. I get in groups and with folks all the time asking, hey, what happens when you die? What's a good person and why is that a big deal? If there's a heaven, how do I get in? If there's a God, can we know him? Why, why are we here? You'd be amazed at the answers you'll get. I'm just asking those kind of questions. Will you fish? Will you fish? Are you following? Because followers fish. Who fished for you? The reality is, you're here today because somebody heard this message at some point and went, you know what? I probably ought to do something with this. Move from fish to fisher. By his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the guys that fish for me. Lord, I, I, Scott Coy, Ken Bajinska, Bill Brewer, Bill Bush, and the others uh, in those years, truly those years that, that uh, brought me from dead in my trespasses and sins to alive in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for those fishers of me. And I pray, God, you'd enable me to fish for others. By your grace and for your glory, I pray. Amen. Thank you.